0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Critics of globalization come in many forms, from environmentalists to trade unionists. Uh, But we're discussing today one rather misunderstood aspect of globalization, regionalism and its relationship with that. It's all discussed in the book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, by Shannon K. O'Neill. So welcome to you.
0: Thanks so much for having
1: me. And you're based at the Council on Foreign Relations?
0: I am, based in New York City.
1: So tell us, you've written this uh, book about uh, regionalism. And I think probably if you could just give us a, a sort of big picture history of global trade, maybe since the Second World War, you know, just what is the big picture of what's happened and what's changed since the war?
0: Sure. Well, you know, I, the title of the book, The Globalization Myth Why Region Matters, comes from looking at trade and money flows and movement ideas and people over this last 40 or 50 years. And as I delved into the data behind this, what you find is that globalization isn't as widespread or as big of a juggernaut as we usually think. Uh, So over this last 40 plus years, this is the time of the rise of global supply chains and, and outsourcing and production we find there's only about two dozen countries that have truly opened up, that have globalized, that have transformed their economies over this time. And the way I measured that was looking at trade as a percentage of GDP. So there's only about 25 countries that doubled their trade to GDP. And, you know, On the other side, we see dozens of countries, 89 countries where trade as part of the economy stayed the same, it stagnated. Or it even decreased. So you have a number of countries that de-globalized over this last 40, 50 year period. So that's one side of, of what the data tells us. The other side is that when companies went abroad either to buy, you know, supply to find suppliers or to find customers. They didn't usually go to the other side of the world. They didn't go global. Uh, instead, they tended to go to countries nearby. And you know, one data point that that brings us home is the average good that crosses borders. So trade only goes three thousand miles. That is about the distance between New York and Los Angeles. That doesn't get you to Germany. It doesn't get you to China. It is much closer than we think. So overall, the reality of this last 40, 50 years, this sort of, you know, house on days of globalization, or at least that's the way it's sort of portrayed in the media or, or in much of the literature, it hasn't been as global or, or as deep and penetrating as we usually think. Okay, before we get
1: into that in more detail as to the way that globalisation hasn't happened as much as people think, I mean, the reason people did think uh, globalisation was big and real were, were basically shipping containers, right? I mean, the whole container revolution and the fact that supply chains did become much more international, didn't they?
0: Yeah, we do see a, we've had globalization throughout history. There's been lots of waves of internationalization and this last 40, 50 years has been another one. And we have seen trade increase substantially. It's gone from $2 trillion in 1980 to $22 trillion today. We've seen the movement of money and finance going abroad, you know, increase nearly tenfold. So there has been an internationalization, most definitely. We've also seen this round of globalization, the post-war period, be different than past rounds of globalization. You know, traditionally, countries would send finished goods abroad. They would send, you know, wine or food or sewing machines or later computers and the like abroad. And that is really what was traded. Sometimes they bring in commodities, but then they'd send out finished goods. This last 40 years of globalization or of internationalization has been quite different. It has been one of supply chains. And so what goes abroad now is is quite distinctive from the past. In fact, 75% of what moves across borders is what economists call intermediate goods. So the pieces and parts and inputs that go into a final good. So that is very different than the past. So it's a distinctive time but what I find in looking at the data and interviewing CEOs of companies and, and looking at these various stories and uh, various corporations and the like is they're not as global as we think. They're international, but less global. Just take us through one
1: example you give of uh, what you're arguing. So the Akron Tire Company.
0: Well, what you find in Akron, Akron's an interesting story. So I grew up in Akron, Ohio, part of the reason why I talk about it in the book. And this is a town or a city that is usually held up, like others, as sort of the victim of globalization. We saw Akron, Ohio, back in the 50s, 60s, was the biggest tire producer in the world. Almost half of the tires that were produced came out of out of this town. Um, and then in the 70s and the 1980s, it started to falter. It was facing competition from Japanese tire makers, from French and German tire makers. And many see this as, look, this is, this is exactly what globalization does. It hallows out local communities. And I would argue that there's a little bit more nuance there. What happened to Akron, Ohio and, and other towns like it was that they were facing international competition, so say global competition. But those suppliers, those Japanese suppliers, French suppliers, German suppliers, they were already relying on regionalization. So Japan, but the tire companies and the car companies... They were making those tires and cars across Asia, not just in Japan. And when you look at the European makers, you know, in France there's Michelin, in, in Germany it was continental. They were already part of what was the European community at the time, later became the European Union. So they were able to produce across Europe and gain economies of scale, get inputs without a lot of the frictions, the tariffs or other regulations that U.S. producers faced, that Akron, Ohio producers faced. NAFTA was a decade away, so they couldn't uh, build up economies of scale or specialization that came later with Mexico and Canada joining under that free trade agreement. And so left alone, they faltered and ultimately failed. And the last tire came off of an Akron factory line in 1982, and you saw that industry really disappear. So I would argue it was as much limited regionalization of the United States and of of tire companies as globalization that really uh, brought that industry down in the United States.
1: So you're saying basically the regionalism that had happened in Europe, that had happened elsewhere, wasn't at that time present in North America because NAFTA hadn't been done. And that really was the problem that Akron Tire Company faced.
0: That was one of the big challenges. And I'll give you another example that that tells the other story. So not too far from Akron, a four or five hour drive from Akron is a town called Columbus, Indiana, also a Midwest town, also an industrial town. And this is the home of Cummins Engines, so a big engine maker that thrived in the post-war period as well, making engines for cars and trucks and heavy machinery and the like. Like Akron, Columbus, Indiana, and uh, the, the engine company suffered in the 1970s and 80s. They were faced with increasing competition from Japanese engine makers that were beating them out for contracts with Ford and GM and, and others. Um, they also faced competition from European makers, BMW and and Mercedes and others. What they they hung on through the 1980s, but were close to bankruptcy at, at various moments, and they were, I would argue, saved by NAFTA. NAFTA came along, and they were able to send some of their assembly and parts making to Mexico and to Canada, so lower their overall costs, make their engines more affordable. They also had access now tariff-free to new markets, and in fact, Mexico became their biggest market or one of their biggest markets for truck engines. They became the biggest provider down there. And that allowed a plant in uh, the state of New York to grow and and expand dramatically. So Cummins Engine's, regrouped, uh, got back on its feet, and it's still one of the most globally competitive engine makers, but precisely because it was able to regionalize. And by doing that, it can now compete with Japanese makers, European makers, or any other kind of engine maker around the world. The story of regionalization in Asia actually started with Japan. It started in the post-war period, and it started in the 1960s when they were running short of, of labor within the island of Japan. So they began outsourcing. They went to countries nearby. Uh, it started with the very poor, at the time, very poor countries of South Korea and Taiwan, later went to Thailand, to Malaysia, to Indonesia. Uh, and we see them create regional supply chains that allowed them to innovate. It gave them economies of scale. Uh, it gave them specialization, and it allowed them to create Very efficient cars, uh, very uh, competitive cars that then uh, many came to the United States uh, and and were sold there. So one side of regionalization was Japan was able to make these cars that could compete uh, and beat out often the Fords and the GMs and the like uh, because of regionalization. That's one side. The other side is when the United States began to regionalize in the 1990s with Mexico and Canada, with NAFTA, uh, we see Japanese car makers decide to move much of that production here to North America. So in the 1970s, 80s, they were sending cars from Asia to the United States for U.S. consumers who wanted their Camrys and and all those other brands. Uh, But well, starting in the 1990s especially, you see them building plants in North America. And interestingly here, just to take one example, Toyota. Toyota has built 14, almost 15 plants in North America over these last 20, 25 years. The vast majority of those have actually been in the United States. Yes, there's a couple in Mexico, there's a couple in Canada, but there's over a dozen that have been built here in the United States. So they're Japanese companies, but they are now North American-made in U.S.-based and, and North American-based factories and with U.S.-based and North American-based workers.
1: Okay. Well, that, that sort of backs up what you're saying earlier about uh, Akron and Cummings. So uh, let's now just move it on to the regions. You, you know, you've named them all, really, the three big ones, the Asian region, Europe, and North America, right? Yes. Tell, tell us more about Asia, first of all. Where does China fit into that now as a regional player?
0: Here in the United States, we often think about the economic competition with China and, and the challenges there. But I would argue that much of that competition is actually with Asia more broadly. Uh, so we can leave aside for a second the national security issues and and semiconductor chips and these other sorts of things, which is another another kind of story but overall the commerce that we've seen expand from China and the imports from China is in large part because they're being made across Asia. So, you know, all of your electronics and your computers and your iPhones, all kinds of clothing and apparel and and shoes and and textiles, all kinds of furniture, ev- all these sorts of industries that Asia has grown to become a very big player in is Asia more than it is China by itself? And you know, one thing I found in doing the research for the book as I think one of the biggest stories of regionalization over this last 40 years is the integration of Asia. So you look back in 1980 and intra-regional trade in Asia, so trade between Asian countries in 1980 was about 30%. Today, it is 60%. It has doubled in terms of the ties with each other. A big part of that is this production. They make things across Asia. Uh, They've also more recently started to sell to Asian consumers as as middle class has grown in those various countries, as economic wealth has grown. Now they are the final destination for a lot of these goods. But I think the big story of regionalization, Europe is very regionalized and and the most regionalized in terms of its sales, two thirds of of trade and money and, and movement remain within the European Union. So they make things together, and they sell things to each other. But Asia is where you see the most dynamism, I would say, and this increasing regionalization. That is the story of Asia that I think is often untold over these last 40 years. Well, you're saying
1: that Europe's ahead in terms of the amount of inter-region trade, but is it also ahead in terms of the, it must be surely, the sophistication of the rules, you know, common rules and the single market and all that stuff? I mean, that's, that's ahead of everywhere, isn't it?
0: So Europe took a very different model to get to this integration. Europe's was very top down as you say and you know most big European cities have a treaty named after them whether it's you know the Treaty of Rome or the Treaty of Nice or the Treaty of Lisbon or of Maastricht. And you saw over these 30 40 years Europe knit itself together through treaties that lowered tariffs, that lowered regulations, that created one passport, that created almost one currency and the like. Asia took a very different model, and treaties really have very little to do with it. This was an integration led by CEOs, by companies going out and and outsourcing and and setting up production in neighboring countries. It was assisted by governments, by bureaucrats, particularly through overseas development assistance. They would build the port that would connect uh, the home country to, to the new place, or they'd build a railroad and the like. But it wasn't about free trade agreements, and in fact, by the time free trade agreements start hitting uh, Asia, most of this integration was already in full force and, and moving forward. So I think what it tells you is you don't necessarily need that top-down view. There's different ways to get to this regionalization, and it can be as strong and as important uh, in terms of you know economic or commercial advantage.
1: And, and just uh, one word on, on the UK and Brexit. So, you know, Brit- Britain left that uh, that regional trading bloc. Uh, from your perspective, you know, was that as uh, uh, you know, a, a crazy decision or c- c- can Britain fit into this regional world now?
0: You're already starting to see the costs for Britain in terms of leaving this union and and how it's left on the outside. It now has to pay some of these tariffs. It has to deal with regulations that that other countries outside of the Union face. Uh, it has all sorts of challenges there in terms of financial flows and the like. And it's costing the the British economy. And what I would say in in the research that I did is, you see commercial advantage and real economic gain. The you know quote unquote winners of globalization over these last forty years, uh, I would argue, are actually those that regionalized. And the UK had been one of these, but by pulling itself out of the region, it puts itself at a commercial and an economic disadvantage. And we see this on you know day to day and in those that can't sell into the EU as easily as they could, whatever kinds of industry they're in. You see it in the foreign direct investment. Lots of companies are deciding to move their headquarters to Europe out of London or out of the UK. And I think that will just continue. It will be a less attractive place to do business uh, and will be a cost for the UK.
1: You've talked a bit about Asia and its sort of corporate led regionalization about uh, Europe and Brexit. When we look at uh, North America, President Trump launched this uh, assault on NAFTA, but then didn't really uh, go as far as, you know, his rhetoric might have suggested he wanted to. What was he thinking? Was he just thinking NAFTA actually does bring great benefits to the United States? Or what? Yeah, tell us about that.
0: So President Trump and there, there's others in our political system and in the United States who are very suspicious of trade, who don't see the benefits of it. And and that's where I think this is really misunderstood in that what we have found is some trade is better for U.S.-based companies and U.S.-based workers than other. And I would argue that trade with our neighbors, this regionalization, is better. and And I'll explain why. So when a factory opens up in Mexico, that factory is far more likely to create supply chains to look for suppliers and inputs and and pieces and parts and components from U.S.-based companies and U.S.-based workers than anywhere else in the world. And I'll give you a data point for that. When an import comes in from Mexico to the United States, so Mexican imports to the United States, on average... 40 percent of that import was made by U.S. workers. The value added was made by U.S.-based companies. Uh, For Canada, it's 25 percent. So there's so many components and, and inputs that were made in the United States, sent to that factory in Mexico to be assembled, and then come back to the United States or go to other places in the world for consumers all over the world. When an import comes in from China, Less than 5% of the value added of that import was made in the United States. China turns to Asia for its suppliers. It's buying things from Japan or South Korea or or Vietnam or Thailand or other places there. So there's no benefit or very little benefit to U.S.-based workers. So, you know, Trump was saying NAFTA was the worst agreement ever and and trying to kill it. But actually, it's the best agreement for U.S.-based workers. If you want to create more jobs here, having trade agreements with those nearby, and particularly with NAFTA, is going to make sure that your components, so the things that you make here, get fed into those regional supply chains. And then the next benefit I just add to this is not only does it allow you to create more affordable and high quality products for for the U.S. or for Mexico, Mexico and Canada in particular have access to 60% of the globe's GDP through free trade agreements up there. So they have preferred access to 60% of the world GDP. The United States actually has very little preferred access where it doesn't face tariffs or, or extra regulations it has access to less than 10% of the globe's GDP. So if you're thinking about a US-based company and the workers in that company, and you want to access the you know, 7.5 billion people that are out there outside of, of North America, having factories in Mexico or, or in Canada allow you to do that. It allows them to export under their trade rules, which are much more favorable if you want to reach the rest of the world.
1: From time to time, there have been champions of bilateralism, haven't there? Uh, remember Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was a big fan of bilateralism rather than regional organisations or even global organisations. Uh, is anyone championing that? Have you? I mean, have you got a view on that?
0: So sometimes bilateralism can can lead to, to big benefits, and there's lots of issues that are so thorny and difficult that it makes sense to approach on a bilateral basis. You know, today, uh, there are many of those issues, as we know, between the U.S. and China, and there's you know, very strong reasons to have bilateral talks there. When you get to these economic issues, and particularly commercial issues that that I'm talking about here... I do think the the broader economies of scale are, are useful, and often that means bringing together groups of countries. When you have huge economies like the United States or China, perhaps it's, it's less important that you bring lots of nations together. But as I think about smaller countries, and particularly the dozens of countries that didn't benefit from this last round of globalization, they were really left on the margins of the creation of global supply chains, either just sending out commodities to to other countries or buying the finished goods back in. They didn't get to participate in, in this regionalization of production or, or production more generally, international production more generally. For smaller countries, I do think regionalism is vital. If they're gonna climb the socioeconomic scale, if they're gonna gain new technologies and become more sophisticated in terms of their economies and then provide better jobs and more prosperity, this is really a vital step on, on that ladder. They need to combine with other countries. And here, a larger group of countries is going to be better for them because they're going to be able to get to these economies of scale. And, and you know, just an example of, of those that have done it, you, know, you think about Europe and the 27 countries within the European Union, very few of those countries would be able to go it alone and have the, you know, the global competitiveness that they do have if they had not joined this region.
1: How much of this is to do with the cost of moving goods physically? You know, if you took, let's say, accountancy or some of these service sectors, where you can do it pretty much online, is the logic that those sectors should be more global, could be more global, that the costs that are encouraging the regionalism you're talking about are mainly associated with physical goods, or is that wrong?
0: So those costs, as you you mentioned with containerization, those costs have come down significantly over the last 30, 40 years. And we also see almost no cost to virtual communications. We're all talking by Zoom and you can talk to somebody, you know, five miles away or five, 10,000 miles away through, you know, over Zoom. So it shouldn't matter, but interestingly, it does. And in fact, McKinsey did this survey of of hundreds of of different companies before COVID, before a lot of, of these issues. And what they found is that they actually dub it, they call it the globalization penalty. And so what they found was that companies that went abroad that internationalized gained. They gained profits, their operating margins got better, that there was a real advantage to going abroad. But the further away they went, uh, the more uh, that those benefits diminished. So they saw their profit margins decline, actually. Uh, so they found sort of a Goldilocks middle, go abroad and and it's better for your company, go too far away. And, and you start to see your profits and your benefits decline. And it's hard to say why. Some may be uh, the cost of distance, not just in the physical, you know, the actual cost that it costs an extra dollar or two or five to to move those extra miles. Some of it may be the time cost. Uh, you know, you see this in fast fashion or in other industries. If something is on a boat for six weeks or eight weeks, rather than being in a store two weeks later, there's a there's a cost in terms of orders. But there are other, you know, somewhat intangible reasons why that distance matters. And we see this in our day-to-day lives. You know, we could talk with somebody on the other side of the world, uh, you know, and become friends with them, but we really don't often, right? It's issues of language. It's issues of trust. Uh, in business, it can be issues of different legal systems or accounting practices or things. So you add costs and trying to understand the way business is done in those places. Uh, It is about building teams and and, having complex supply chains develop and the like where you really need people to communicate clearly and transparently and effectively across space and time. And it's harder than we think. There's still a human element within here. So that's a long way of saying that Distance matters, but it's other things within distance than the, the actual cost of putting something on a ship or on a plane.
1: Yeah. And, and just uh, trying to find a, a counterexample to what you're arguing. If if I raise the case of Bangladesh, would, I, would, would you say to me, oh, no, Bangladesh is getting all its sort of local supply chains regionally. And that's why it can produce all these goods that sell globally. Or would I be right in saying, you know, Bangladesh has got local production of textiles and so on. They're ordered in the West, and that is a real example of a globalization win for Bangladesh.
0: So I'd say two things here. The argument I'm putting forward, or the way I see this, is it's not as if there's no globalization. Of course there's globalization. And we can point to very high-profile companies that are truly global, You know, Boeing sources from 58 different countries, so you definitely see that. Um, What I would say is alongside those very high profile cases like that, there are thousands, tens of thousands of companies that did internationalize, um, but just went nearby, just went next door within its region. The other thing I would say, and this is back to the interplay between intermediate goods and final goods, is that, yes, Bangladesh has become a major source of of fashion and, and apparel that goes out to the world they buy the synthetic thread that goes in there from China or from their neighbors. They also, the weaving might happen in Thailand. The dyeing might happen in Malaysia. And all of this comes together in assembly in Bangladesh. So you see very strong regional apparel supply chains across Asia, which Bangladesh is often a center and an assembly spot. Um, And then their customers might be out in the rest of the world and be globally out in the rest of the world and often are, but it's this intermediate goods that are seventy five percent of all the trade that's happening. That's where you see the regionalization of which Bangladesh is is at the center or is a, is a strong part is in the production, if not the actual final consumer sale.
1: So, so let me ask the question like this: same sort of questionary. Which is the best? Which is the most globalized economy on earth?
0: That's a good question. You know, I would say the most globalized economies are probably uh, the more traditional economies um, that produce raw materials. So the Saudi Arabia's or the UAE or others that are sending out oil and gas, those are the most globalized, they're sending things out. But when you start getting into manufacturing and services and sort of higher value goods or where you have value added to those goods, that's where this regionalization tends to kick in because you see those goods By creating them across various countries, but countries that are tied to each other and often regionally nearby, that's where you see them become most competitive and beat out other competitors that are either trying to do it by itself um, or their supply chains are stretched so thin across geographies that they're no longer as competitive.
1: We've talked about uh, Europe, Asia, North America. There are regions in the world that haven't taken off. And I wonder how much of that is down to... You know, a failure of imagination by governments in those regions to to do what's necessary to get those regional trade agreements and so on. So, perhaps we can go through those one by one. Africa. I mean, there are so many factors uh, explaining Africa's lack of development. How important is a failure to regionalize?
0: So, as you say, there's many reasons why why countries have challenges, and and these areas you're talking about, Africa, Latin America. I didn't add in South Asia to that, you know, these are areas that really didn't benefit significantly from this last wave of, you know, what we call globalization. I would say that I think regionalization is a big part of that. When you look at the trade or investment in these various places, only 10-15% goes to their neighbors. The vast majority is going out to the rest of the world. And and what that means is they often end up on the ends of supply chain. So they send raw materials out, commodities and the like out, and they bring back finished goods, you know, whether it's from China or, or the US or Europe or the like, it's finished goods that come back. So they never get to become part of that middle part of the supply chain. And that's the part that has technologies. That's the part that has a lot of learning by doing for, for labor. Um, that's the part that, you know, increases sort of managerial skills and, and really is, is this learning process that allows you to create more sophisticated goods, allows you to innovate. Um, and so what you're seeing too is that these countries, while they've stayed sort of on their own and not regionalized, they're facing Regionalization in other places. And you know, one of the big challenges for Africa and, and for Latin America, I would say, particularly South America, because uh, Mexico has tied into to the US and Canada, is what economists call premature deindustrialization. So these are economies that are still middle-income economies, but they're losing their manufacturing sector. And you know, one example, Brazil it's seen manufacturing fall almost 10 percentage points as part of its economy, so huge decline. And much of this is it's being flooded by... Goods, I would argue, made regionally elsewhere, and it just can't compete. The local industry just can't compete. And so it's beginning to disappear. Um, and that, I think, is the real challenge. There's lots of things Africa, Latin America, South Asia need to do to, to, to grow and, and to, to see you know, real economic uh, prosperity. But this is one path or one element that would help them in that direction is regionalizing.
1: Yeah, the, 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 you're mentioning Brazil reminds me, I wanted to ask about BRICS, you know, there was all this talk of Brazil, India, Russia, China, wasn't it, as being almost a region, you know, but not geographically close to each other. And and I get the impression there's much less talk of that now. So does that, that, back, that backs up your argument, does it, that BRICS didn't really work like that?
0: It is. I mean, the BRICS, it's interestingly, was created by a Goldman Sachs banker, this idea that these countries would come together and be the next powerhouses. And and there are reasons why they're there uh, and quite important. But I would say the economic side, the commercial side didn't play out the way perhaps it was envisioned on on global you know, security issues, on big issues like climate change and the like. These are really important countries that need to be part of the discussion. But they're, they never came together in a commercial sense um, that I think was once envisioned. And I do think precisely because of the pull of regionalization. These are widespread and, and global countries not near each other and not tied to each other through free trade agreements or the like. Um, and so you don't see that concentration um, that was once envisioned.
1: Now, if, I can't remember what the um, South American Regional Organization is. There is one, isn't there?
0: There are there's over a dozen of them yeah, that, have, that have that have come together and <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> there's been an idea of regionalization since the 1960s that they should all come together and and this is the path forward and particularly on the economic side But very few governments have actually done anything in concrete terms to to make that happen. Uh, This is a region that, you know, the infrastructure does not tie countries together. In fact, there's only one railroad crossing between Argentina and Chile. You know, there's very few roads through the Amazon that would tie Brazil to the Pacific countries of of Ecuador or Peru or, or Chile. So we don't see the physical ties, uh, and we don't really see the treaty ties. You know, unlike Europe, we don't see a lot of free trade agreements or or really comprehensive free trade agreements that would pull these countries together. Uh, and so, we haven't seen they've sort of gone it their own on on the economic side, on the commercial side, and in that they've they've muddled through rather than really thrived.
1: You sort of answered my question there, which is, which is you just mentioned two things: transport links and free trade. Arrangements are those the two main drivers of regionalism. A successful region,
0: I think those are two big drivers. Uh, the other is uh, thinking about workforces, thinking about education and skills and the like. Um, and then a the final one, which is less about setting the rules or or setting the roads and rails and the like. The other is to think about the economies of scale. And so I, I'll give you an example today. We're looking at a green transition around the world. We're looking at new green commodities, you know, the lithium and manganese and cobalt and copper and things that go into electric vehicle batteries and the solar panels and all these sorts of things that the world is going to need. And South America, in particular, is has a bounty of all of these uh, various commodities. But it's hard to imagine a country like Chile of you know, 18, 20 million people or Peru, that's not all that much bigger, being able to set up a whole industry of of lithium processing or rare earth processing. This is something that if you're going to be economically competitive, commercially competitive, you'd need to do across countries. You need to have that larger market uh, in terms of access to labor, in terms of access to capital and in terms of access to the natural resources, in terms of to the markets that you can get into and tap as a company, um, and, and looking out to the world. So if, You know, Latin America or South America wanted to take advantage or or one way to take advantage of this this push for green commodities that's about to come or is already coming is to think about regionalizing, to think about setting up those processing plants, the mining, the processing, the other parts of this chain across countries, because I think that would make it much more attractive and bring capital, but also bring know-how and technology to the region, the kinds of things that they're trying to do. Here's a place to start.
1: Yeah, so so that gets us on to the future and the, the the trends here, and you know, in one sense, there's a, there's a if you, you know, it just depends on your time scale, doesn't it? But if you go back uh, over the centuries, the, the the trend towards globalization is definitely there. But you're pointing out that it hasn't gone as far as many think. I'm wondering if you're actually going further than that and saying things like environmental concerns mean that there is actually an advantage in regionalism and there are drivers that are making regionalism more important.
0: I agree with that. I look at this last decade plus, even before COVID, and I think COVID just accelerated trends that, that were already underway. But we see climate change reasons uh, for more regionalization, both in the natural disasters that are happening, the rising seas, these sorts of things make make transit more difficult. Uh, We also see the reaction to climate change, people putting in carbon border adjustment taxes or other levies for every extra mile you go, you need to pay a tax because it adds to the global carbon emissions. So that is limiting the distance or the benefits of of long geographic distances. You see the rise of automation, particularly in manufacturing manufacturing, but in other areas. And so that means the low cost wages that once drew people to China or other places are, at least in some industries, less important than logistics and time to market and the thing. So that also has a regionalizing tendency. And then I'd add in the geopolitics. We're seeing a a growth in hostilities and distancing between the US and China. And so add in all of these factors and right now, you're really seeing a, a once-in-a-generation fluidity to supply chains. You know, Companies and boards of directors are all talking about, do we stay where we are? Where do we put our next factory? How do we think about this? And many of these factors will lead toward more regionalization for that next factory or that next investment, I would say. Um, and so there's an opportunity for those countries that didn't benefit the last time, that didn't really become part of this to, to jump in because there's movement that's happening. Um, but I would say over this next decade is when companies will reset their supply chains. We'll figure out how to deal with automation, climate change, demographics, geopolitics. And these supply chains tend to be pretty sticky once they're set up because you have trust buildup, you have suppliers, you have a way of doing business, and it's costly to try to go figure out a whole new way of doing it.
1: Yeah. So if you were advising companies, is there one particular yeah, and, and telling them, look, you should be thinking about regionalism much more and you know, take it seriously. And this is where the trends are and so on. Is there one sector in, in industry or services which you would go to first saying, look, you particularly are going to be living in a regional world rather than the global world?
0: So the sectors where you're seeing that already are the ones that the United States, China and Europe in particular have deemed national security sectors. You know, those where they feel like they must have control or capacity uh, either at home, so reshoring or within those that they can trust and often that is is neighbors and regionalization. So we see this in semiconductors where You know, we're seeing governments pour hundreds of billions of dollars to try to control those supply chains. We're seeing it in electric vehicle batteries and and sort of these green transition technologies the same. They want to make sure they have access to the technology of the future. We're seeing it in raw materials and, and particularly critical minerals. You know, the U.S. Department of Defense and others want to make sure they have control of those. And I would say we're also going to see it and beginning to see it in pharmaceuticals and medicines and medical devices after covid People want to make sure that they have access to basic medicine. So those are the areas where you are seeing governments pouring tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars behind. uh, So there's incentives to move. And then you're also seeing them put forward some sticks. They're putting export controls, or if you sell to one person, you can't sell it to the other. So these are the supply chains I think are moving, will move most quickly um, because of the costs that governments are putting on the status quo, the sort of business as usual. Yeah,
1: and if you took the other end of it and said, you know, advising companies in a particular sector that their future is more likely to remain global or become even more global, which ones would they be? Would that be raw materials again?
0: Raw materials is is, is obviously one of them because some place, some things are just made in certain places, right? Oil is produced in, in certain places and and not in others, and, and there's a sunk cost there. Um, there are other ones that are not national security concerns, but also I think there's some flexibility here and there's different models that work. Uh, So you can have, you know, the race to the bottom and go for the lowest wage workers and and production, or you can do it in a different way. And, you know, one of the most interesting companies I found in, in doing my research was Um, The company Zara, which is a global fast fashion brand. It's actually the biggest fast fashion brand in the world. They sell half a trillion dollars worth of clothes every year. They also have the highest margins of any fast fashion brand. So they're the most profitable, all of them. And the way they do this is not by producing in Bangladesh. They produce almost all of their clothing in Europe. Uh, So this is a place with higher labor costs, with worker protections, with environmental safeguards and the like, but they manage to be the most profitable by producing there. And they have this sort of high equilibrium way of making things where they use a lot of automation. Um, they make in small batches. They don't make, you know, hundreds of thousands of T-shirts or, or pants. They make smaller batches and they get to market much faster. So they don't have to discount the way many of those who you know, are waiting six, eight weeks for a boat to get across the Pacific to U.S. markets or other markets. So there are different models here that you can play out and some of them, you know, make life better for the workers uh, or the companies that are involved there, too. Well, look.
1: thanks very much for talking us through. It's a very good topic to write a book about because trade is sort of you know, such a driver of wealth, isn't it? And and, and so important. And yet not often, uh, yeah, not many academics or policymakers devote themselves to just focusing on the nature of trade and the trends in trade, it seems to me. Do, do you think that's fair?
0: You know, we've seen over centuries trade has brought great wealth. We've also seen that it creates great disruptions. And I think our time is is no different in that. But what I do see, and, and one of the reasons that I really got into this topic and started looking at it five plus years ago is the global economy is really undergirded by these supply chains. And when I first started looking at it, nobody really talked about them. Obviously, now we talk a lot about them because we want to know if our, you know, holiday presents are showing up and and you know, where where the thing we ordered, you know, many months ago has has appeared or not. But this really is something what we found over the last 40 plus years is that. It is incredibly profitable uh, and affordable to create these international supply chains. So I think they're here to stay, even as, as I look forward the next 10, 20 years. I think we're going to see a, a change and transformation in, in where they are and, and how they work. And
1: the future is regional. Indeed. OK, thank you very much for telling us all about it.
0: Thank you so much for having me.